That's a lot of joy and energy after the Dodgers lost last night. So Steve's a big fan. Sorry. We've been grieving. I see an LA hat right there. Still representing. It's good. How's everyone doing? Good? Good, good, good. Uh, well, let's get into the word today. You can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. Um, you know, it's been a great season of progress and growth for us here at Calvary Chapel Palace Verdes. Uh, we just passed the two-year mark since this church was planted. So good. We're now, yeah, we can clap for that. Uh, we're now in the rhythm of two services on Sunday mornings. As Steve said, there's several midweek gatherings going on. And, and it just seems like what the Lord's doing is he's, he's got his hand of blessing upon this church. And it's so good to see. Um, but as God is growing our family in both size and what I believe is also in depth, uh, we're really grateful for that. But, you know, some people have been joking with me recently by saying, get ready for three services. Uh, but here, here's my thought about, you know, continued growth in our church is, is it's like my third-born child, is that my wife and I weren't entirely sure about whether we wanted to go for a third. Um, we knew that it was going to be a lot of work, you know, anybody in the, the, in the trenches right now with me? Let's go. Uh, and, uh, but, and it was around the time as well with the birth of this church, and we went back and forth about having a third child, and, and we decided to try for a third, and, and God blessed us with the, with the baby. I see you there. Look at Nick. He just got his arms full right now with children. <laughs> and, uh, but, but more, you know, I, was, I asked for a service, and it was like, I got eight kids. You know, we should... How many kids we got? We got lots of kids, right? And, and so I love a growing family. I love my house full of children, and I love this growing church. I love to see the, the growth happening here. But, but anytime there, there's growth, there is the need for the resources of strength and energy. Just come to the Hendrickson house around dinner time, and you'll see how much strength and energy is required. But, but as we know, God gives us the grace and the empowerment to do these good works for him. And, and, and so I'll say this about us going to a potential third service in the future. Let's ask the Lord to keep on bringing people into this church family. Amen? But let, let's be asking God to be bringing people. And maybe, maybe you're new here and you've come into this family. Is that it would be done in a way that is healthy, sustainable, and relational. And, and here's also my prayer. My prayer is that I want, I want all of you guys to be praying with me this way too. Let's ask the Lord to fill this church with new life in Jesus Christ. And, and I'm, I don't mean newborn babies, although we've got some of those on the way. You got two in your arms and there's one in her stomach right now. And, and so, you know, we're not talking about that. I'm talking about the growth that comes from newborn life by the Spirit of God. As Jesus said, being born again by the Spirit. And that is what brings us into the family of God. And, and so what we're doing right now as a church is we're, we're getting this house ready. We're doing some nesting. Uh, you guys know what nesting is, right? We're, we're, we're getting this house ready for what we believe will be the great blessing and the work of bringing new children into this family. I just am going to be praying for new believers to be coming into the kingdom in this upcoming season. And I want you to join me in praying that way. But we have to understand something is that seeing new people enter the kingdom is not all that different from seeing a newborn life. You know, it's, it's messy, but it's sweet. It is loud, but also just so lovely. It is tiring, but it's very filling and, and it's all worth it. It's all good. And, and as, you know, we continue to grow as a church, and it's just been a true blessing to see, um, we could add a third service. We could get a bigger building. We could plant more churches. Whatever God calls us to do, we want to do what he's leading us to do. So that's, that's my little mini sermonette before we get into the real sermon. Um, and I also wrote that part of my sermon while right after I put my one-year-old down for a nap. And, you know, he protested me as if I was putting him into, like, a fiery furnace. But the best part is that after his nap, he woke up. He was so refreshed. He was so happy. And so likewise, church, 
our heavenly Father knows what is best for our church. And as his children, we're going to choose to receive whatever it is that he wants to give us in the future of this church. And so I'm just asking, though, and I want you to ask with me, more souls into the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into the, the actual sermon. So Lord Jesus, thank you for that brief exhortation to this church that I love so much. God, I pray that you would continue to bring the great joy of new life into this church family. Lord, would you get us ready for what I I believe will be a harvest of souls that we can't even imagine? God, you actually said, Jesus, in, in, in the gospel, you said, the fields are white for harvest, but the laborers are few. And so, God, would you make us your laborers in your kingdom? Would you make us workers who are um, participating in the work of the good news going out? And so, God, bring strength and power to your church today. Bring glory to your name in all that we do. And, God, I just pray that, that the world would see what we have and what you give, and they would want it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So... I've just been praying and seeking the Lord about what he's doing in his church, and and I believe that the Lord's up to something. I I believe that the Lord is, two words come to my mind, which is refinement and refreshment. And last Sunday, I had the blessing of hearing people give testimony to some of the work that God is doing in people's hearts. You know, last week, we uh, covered this prayer of repentance in Nehemiah chapter 9. It was so encouraging to hear people who had this newfound desire to turn away from sin and to turn to God. And there's nothing better than that, is there? And so repentance is being granted from the Lord. Souls are being refreshed in him. And and we're, we're just asking God, would you, by your grace, continue to do that in our midst? Would you continue that we would experience your love, your patience, your kindness, your, your, your forgiveness toward us, because we all know, right, that we miss the mark, that we sin. And we will talk about sin in this church, as we have been and we will continue to, because the judgment of sin begins in the house of the Lord. And if we want to see revival which I believe God wants to bring. I I believe God always wants to bring renewal to his people. We must never forget this, church, that revival begins with people who already have faith in God. That when the church gets refined is when we get revived. And we see this evidenced in in nature. Um, Like with with growth comes... Or, or, or after a pruning comes new growth, right? You ever seen that? Your, your gardener comes to your house and chops down all your beautiful plants. You're like, what are you doing? It's like, wait a minute. It, it, it needs to grow. And then you realize later, oh, yes, new growth comes with a pruning. And, and God does that. God refines his church in order to prepare for what will come from his hand. And so this is... This is how we're going to see, I believe, the the fruit of new birth, the growth that we wish to see is when Christians, myself included in this, when we stop being half-hearted creatures and, and we begin to fully embrace the abundant life that Jesus offers to us as new creations. It's when the church is walking in the grace of holiness that is when the people of this world will start seeing what's happening at Calvary Chapel and they'll say, I want to have what those people have. And then we'll get the opportunity to tell them how salvation is found in no one else but Jesus Christ. And that is when we begin to see a church explode with the new life that is found in Jesus Christ. And so Nehemiah has been a fantastic book for us to study in this season because there's, there's a building that was taking place in order to bring a renewal that would happen among the people. And we've seen so many similarities between what God did in his people in the days of Nehemiah and what we see God doing with us here. And there are differences for sure. 
And we're going to see those differences today, uh, especially as we look at what happened in the days of Nehemiah. They were under the old covenant, whereas today we are under the new covenant. We'll see those differences. But there are many similarities, and we've seen the work of rebuilding and the work of renewing. The work of building and renewal are major themes in the book of Nehemiah. You could say it's like the construction of a wall and the instruction of a people. God working in, his, in and through his people to bring better days to Jerusalem. Now, now, you might have noticed as you came in this morning that the church was painted this week. Pretty nice. What do you guys think? You, do you agree that it's, it's a nice color? Yes. Good, good. I love this color. It's called agreeable gray. And everyone seems to agree that it is a wonderful color. And so, uh, you know, one of the things I just want to give a shout out to John Esparza, who's our newest staff member here. Man. His hand is on so many things, and just God's using him in this church, and so we're thankful. But, but as we've all been encouraged, we all want to get our hands on the work of what God's going to do. We want to prepare a house here where God is going to bring just abounding blessing to it. And, you know, these walls easily experience 10 to 15 years of hard use, probably more. But now we've got this fresh coat of paint here to, you know, take us into the next 10 to 15 years of fruitful ministry. Because what we're, what we're doing and what we're seeing is we're prepping the house for what we believe God is going to bring into it. We're, we're setting the table for how people are going to come and dine with Jesus. And it's amazing what a fresh coat of paint can do to a place. It, as I like to say, paint covers a multitude of sins. You know, it covered that coffee you spilled down the wall last week. You know, God saw that coffee spill. But, but, but we have these renewed walls, but how do we keep these walls looking fresh? And, and I used the illustration before about white shoes, and I'm wearing white shoes. How many people just don't wear white shoes because they just get dirty, right? But, but same thing with walls or shoes or whatever it is. How do we keep things looking clean is you got to keep a short account of sin. If you get a blemish, you got to clean it up. In the same way in our lives spiritually, if there is a blemish that comes in your life, if you sin against your God, go to Jesus right away and get it cleaned up. Because his love covers over a multitude of sins. And every time you come to him, he washes you and forgives you, and he chooses not to remember your sins anymore. How many of you guys remember the color of these walls before they became agreeable gray? Yeah, some of you, what color was it? Yeah. Hardly anyone remembers, right? And, and in the same way, God, when he looks at your life, he doesn't see the yellow, blemished, hand-printed walls all over them. He sees how the blood of Jesus and the love has covered over a multitude of sins, and he doesn't even remember your sins anymore because he's given you a new life in Jesus Christ. But even with new life in Jesus Christ, we still have blemishes, and it's important that we go to Jesus to stay renewed and refreshed in his love. Amen? Amen? Amen. So church, let's keep ourselves in the love of God as he keeps us. Let's keep our conscience clear before Jesus. And a little side note too before we move on just about these walls. I'm looking around if I see any youth in here. I see you, Gretchen, right there. Uh, I'm just gonna say this. There is a command that I have for you. And if you obey this command, you will be blessed. I see you over there. If you disobey this command, you will be cursed. Okay, and I'm not going to say, you know, we're, we're under the new covenant, so I can't say that it's God who will curse you, but if I see a dirty basketball thrown against one of these freshly painted walls, <laughs> you do not want to see what happens, you know, just, just to be clear, the basketball goes into the hoop, right? That's how, we know how the game's played, right? Ryan, can you keep them accountable for me? Okay. Ryan and Sam, our youth leaders back there. So, just saying. Okay, now that segues perfectly into Nehemiah chapter 10. The, the walls around Jerusalem were built. And listen, the walls have purpose. God cares about walls, but, but God, so much more. God cares about the people that are inside of the walls. 
You know, God's, God's not so interested in the paint color of our sanctuary. But God is very interested of the sanctuary of our hearts. He's interested in the work of building lives, and God wants the sanctuaries of our hearts to be covered by the blood of Jesus and refreshed by his word. And, and when God was doing a renewal in the hearts of the people of Israel, inside those rebuilt walls, it happened as the people were reading and explaining the law, as the people gathered before God. There were prayers of repentance that were then made as they heard the word and recommitted their lives to obey what God had commanded. And so this renewal was taking place, and they were committing themselves to obey God again, because they had recognized as they looked at their history that they had again and again disobeyed God. They got caught in that cycle of sin and restoration and sin and restoration. And, and so they're saying, God, we want to start obeying you in these areas that historically we have failed to obey. And so today we're going to look at three areas of obedience to God that the people recommitted themselves to. They wanted to obey God in the area of marriage and sex. They wanted to obey God in the area of work and rest. And they wanted to obey God in the areas of money and giving. So I told my wife this week, she's like, what are you teaching on this Sunday? I said, I'm teaching on marriage, sex, work, rest, money, and giving. Oh, good. You mean everything that people struggle with. <laughs> yes. We've got some stuff to talk about today. These are the areas where Israel historically failed to obey God, and not much has changed for us, has it? So the people decided to renew a covenant with the Lord. They said, we're going to choose to obey the Lord in these areas. Now, in the last verse of chapter 9, just for context, verse 38, this is what we read. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of the princes, our Levites, and our priests. So as you recall, chapter 9 was a prayer of repentance. The people confessed the ways that they had sinned and, and the previous generations had sinned before the Lord. And they told God, they, they said, God, we are done with this cycle of sin in our lives. They wanted to live in the joy and the freedom and the blessing of God. And so they wrote down the ways that they were determined to obey God. It says there that it was a firm covenant, meaning that they were really serious about this. And they sealed it. They made it official. The leaders of Israel then signed it saying, we agree to this. They said, we, we want to obey God and we want to live under his blessing. And so when we come into Nehemiah chapter, name, we see the, chapter 10, we see the names of those who signed the covenant. In verse 1, it says, on the seals are the names. And then notice, you see the first name in this list of 84 names is Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah. Now, we've seen Nehemiah. Hasn't he been such a great spiritual leader throughout this book? And we see here that he put his name on the covenant first. He was the first to sign it. Why? Because, and I think this applies a lot for me or for you, if you're in any sort of capacity of spiritual leadership, you can't lead people into places that you're not willing to go yourself. And Nehemiah is a man who led from a place of his own repentance and renewal. I'm, I'm here to tell you guys that in all these areas we're going to look at today, I have and still continue today to struggle in these areas. So I, I, I come to, to today to say, I'm in this with you. So let's look at it. We're going to first see the, the different names that are listed. In verses 1 through 8 are the names of the priests of Israel. In verses 9 through 27 are the names of the Levites. And from verse 28 to 29, we see that the rest of the people of Israel who agreed with this firm covenant, they signed it as well. So there are 84 
names that represented a whole nation before God saying, God, we want to walk in your ways. We make a firm covenant in writing. And you see how I just got myself out of reading 84 names. (laughs) Now, before we get into the text, when I use that word covenant, I can't assume that everyone knows what I'm talking about. If you begin to study the Bible, you're going to discover that God is pretty into covenants. Covenant is the way that God relates to his people. If we were to have a word in our English language that might come close to it, it would be the word contract. Uh, only when we think of a contract, like, like if you're going to sign a contract for a new, a new job offer, we, we might come to the contract and there can be some negotiating that happens on either party, right? You can negotiate a contract. A covenant, though, is different in that God sets the terms and we either agree with it or we don't. You know, some people think of God like, like a used car salesman. And, and I don't mean any offense to anyone who sells used cars. It's, it's a good job, right? But, but sometimes we think of God where it's like we come to church and God says, hey, what are you looking for today? I, I, I got just the thing you need, right? And, and you come to church and then there's sort of this back and forth negotiation that you have with God until you get what you're looking for, right? And, and so if it fits your own terms, then, then great, you might sign the deal, but, but you might walk away and not accept the offer, But that's not how God relates to us. See, when we come to God, we come to his covenant. And we either accept his covenant or we reject his covenant. God doesn't negotiate with us his terms. And and the best part about this, guys, is, is that God always keeps covenant. And his covenants are true and faithful and they're they're so good. They are for our flourishing. You know, we could just say this, God knows what is best. And if we were to follow his covenants, we would be blessed. And so when the people come to God to renew this covenant with him, it wasn't the covenant that needed to change. It was the people that needed to change. See, a covenant never fits to what we want We bend to fit what the covenant wants. And God wanted his people to learn from the repeated failures throughout Israel's past. And he wanted them to turn back to God's covenant that he made with Moses at Mount Sinai. Where God gave commands and this covenant can just simply be referred to as the law. And so the people are coming back to the law of God. Only spoiler alert. If you don't want to hear this spoiler, you want to wait for chapter 13, you got to plug your ears. But in chapter 13, they break this covenant. All these people who signed their names on the dotted line and said, God, we're going to obey you in all of these areas. Guess what? They're the areas that they failed to obey him in chapter 13. And we'll get to that. It's a great chapter. And there's still no difference today, which is that because of sin that is in our members, we fail to obey God's law. But the difference is that we are under a new covenant that is signed and sealed by the blood of Jesus and the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. And that God takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh and he gives us commands, but he enables us by his grace and by his spirit to obey him in those commands. See, we're not under a covenant of the law. We are under a new covenant, the covenant of God's grace, which you'll hear more about today. But in verse 28 through 29, let's read, it says, the rest of the people the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and, look at this, enter into a curse 
and an oath to walk with God's law that was given to Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. So all the people agreed. They said God's ways are better than our ways. God is always right and true. He's always faithful, but we are faithless. And we go after what is false. And we, we sin against our God. And you know, God made a covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. The covenant contained laws that were given for the people to obey. You remember the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from the mountain that he received from God. And what were the people already doing? They were worshiping a golden calf and dancing around the fire, like right away. And yet the people came back to the law again and again and again. We saw that in Nehemiah as they came to those gatherings at the gates. They agreed to walk with God again. And so, again, the, the, the people, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, so on, they said, together with our husbands, our wives, our son, sons and daughters, we're going to live this way. We're going to live the way that God wants us to live. But did you notice what they said? They said, God, if we live the way you want us to live, bless us. But, God, if we don't live the way you want us to live, curse us. And at the end of this message, I've got something so much better to tell you. And I fear that there might be some people still living on those old and obsolete terms. See, in Jesus Christ, God has established a new and better covenant, and it has nothing to do with whether you've obeyed him or disobeyed him. It has everything to do with how Jesus Christ obeyed the law perfectly and how he removed the curse of our disobedience by dying on a cross and conquering sin and its penalty, which is death, by his resurrection. Amen? And in the new covenant, what God does is he gives us the great blessing of Jesus' obedience. He gives us his new covenant in spite of our keeping or our breaking of the law. If you could say the old covenant was based upon deserving and earning, God's new covenant is based upon grace and receiving. We believe and we receive what God has accomplished for us, and it's not about what you have done or what you have not done. You are saved by grace through faith in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And so for the rest of this chapter, what we're gonna see is the three areas where the Israelites told God, we're going to obey you in this. And these are still things that as Christians in the new covenant, we still want to obey God in these areas. And even so that God gives us the ability of his grace and spirit to obey. So again, we're gonna look at the areas of marriage and sex, work and rest, money and giving. So first, they wanted to obey God in the area of marriage and sex. Verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So as I said, there's plenty of similarities in Nehemiah and there's a lot of differences. The difference here we're seeing is that in those days, mothers and fathers would give their daughters and their sons in marriage. And I don't mean that in the sense that, you know, an officiant stood up and said, who gives this woman to be married to this man? Like, I mean, like your dad chose who you're going to marry. <laughs> and, and, you know, for fathers of young daughters, it doesn't seem like a bad system, right? <laughs> Girls aren't laughing right now, right? Because today, right, especially in our society, people choose who they will marry. And I think that's a good thing. But, but in Israel, you know, they had a choice as well but God also has a command. You can choose whoever you want to marry, but do you know that God has commands for marriage? And, and in the Old Covenant, in Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, if you want to read it in depth, you can write that down. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5, it, God said as he gave the promised land to the people, he said, when you enter it, I want you to drive out all of the foreigners with all of their false idols. 
And he said to them, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their sons for your daughters. He says, do not make any covenants with any of these other foreign nations. Why? Well, because God is a heavenly killjoy and he hates a really good romance story. (laughs) Is that why God gave that command? And sadly, a lot of us think that that's why God gives these commands is in order to restrict us in order to take away our joy and our pleasure, in order to remove love from us. And he becomes this sort of God who either blushes in the clouds or he despises all things related to sex. No friends, God created sex for his glory and for our good. Do you guys know that sex existed before sin ever entered into the world? And it's sin that has marred sex and marriage. And so God commanded his people to marry within the chosen people, not because God was discriminatory, discriminatory, right? But because by marrying a person who did not love and serve the God of Israel, there was the probability that they would go and love and serve other gods. And this is the case of Solomon, the son of David, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Look in 1 Kings 11, 1 through 4, what it says about this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and the Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was Uh, was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Very interesting that it says, as was the heart of David his father, because that guy didn't have a really good, you know, track record either. But guys, one, one day I was driving in the car with my kids, and there was a program that we listened to called Adventures with Odyssey. Any Adventures with Odyssey fans? Yes, good stuff. And there was this part, and the, the, it said, Solomon had 700 wives. And my daughter in the back seat said, that is 699 too many. <laughs> <laughs> and then my son piped in, and he's like, Yeah, he should break up with some of them. (laughs) So good. Guys, but the point is this. God created marriage, and marriage is a covenant. Remember, God sets the terms of covenant. We either agree with it or we don't. We don't get to change the terms of the covenant of marriage. God does that. He sets it. And he said this in his word. That marriage is between one man and one woman in a lifelong commitment that he calls marriage. And so for the Jews in the Old Covenant and for Christians in the New Covenant, God has something to say about who we should marry. In the Old Covenant, it was based on Jewish race in order to preserve the messianic line that Jesus would come through. But in the new covenant, it is based on the fact that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. And that's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? So under the new covenant, God wants you to marry, if you're not married, God wants you to marry someone who believes in the new covenant, so that in your marriage covenant, it will be centered around what marriage is all about, which is the mystery that Jesus loves his church. 
And so the question for us here this morning is this. Do we want to obey God in the areas of marriage and sex? Are we going to agree with God in what he has said in his word that sex is to be between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant called marriage? Will we agree God's commands that he says, what God has joined together, let no man separate? See, anything apart from this is sin. It's living apart from God's good design that wasn't meant for your restricting, but was meant for your flourishing. And so, if there's any deviation from that, we simply repent and turn back to God and begin to obey him. So, are you a Christian who is dating a non-Christian? God's word advises you to separate. Are you a Christian married to a non-Christian? God's word advises you to stay together. Are you not yet a Christian because you're not sure that you can agree with what God has set for his covenant terms regarding sex and marriage? And that's a thing that's hindering you from entering the kingdom. I tell you, friends, sex and marriage are not the truest thing about us. And you can find the truest thing about you in your worth, in your identity, in your salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. So whether you're single, married, divorced, or widowed, would we choose to obey God in the areas of sex and marriage? And would you discover from his word what that is? Now, look, we don't have enough time to go into all the layers and all of the nuances of this topic. But hear me in this, is that you can take God's word... And if you have a relationship with God, it means you have the spirit of God inside you and you can determine what God's word says about your particular sexual or romantic life. And if you need any kind of counsel, we as a church are here in order to help people understand what God's word says about life and godliness. And we'd love to, one, we, we love, we, we won't condemn but just show grace and grace and grace and seek so that we would be able to follow God in his ways. Amen? Amen. So they wanted to obey God in those areas. They also wanted to obey God in the areas of work and rest. So read verses 31 to 34 with me. And if the people of the land bring in goods of any or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exacting of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give, a yearly, give yearly a third part of the shekel for the service of the house of God. For the showbread, the regular burnt, uh, grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring into the house of our God according to our father's houses at, appointed, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. Now, there's a lot in there, and you could go back and do a deep dive study on this stuff, but... But what God has in his commands of his law is commands for work and rest. See, the reason why the Israelites were even taken out of the land in the first place is because they failed to give the land rest. They kept planting crop after crop. And God said, you're not going to give the land rest, and I'm going to take you out of the land. And so he took them out, and he put them in exile so that the land could replenish. Because God said, plant crops and let the land rest on the seventh year. God said, you're to work six days and then on the seventh rest. They, they were to charge interest on loans for six years, but on the seventh they were to release debts. See, there was always work that needed to be done as well at the temple, and the, and the people had to bring bread and offerings and Sabbaths and festivals and atonement, and everyone was to share and participate in this work. Now, now what does this say about us? Again, we're, we're in the new covenant. 
We don't have the sacrificial system. Do we still observe a Saturday Sabbath or a sabbatical year? But, but if we may, may or may not, according to your conviction, what is the principle behind the Sabbath? And what is it that God has said about work and rest? See, like sex and marriage, work and rest existed before sin. And it's because of sin that we either work too much or we rest too much. See, God had a pattern of, in his creation, where he worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. And again, we're not under law, but under grace. Jesus is our Sabbath, but it doesn't remove the spiritual and physical principle that we are not intended to work all the time. We're not either intended to rest all the time. There's a right balance in these areas of our lives, and gosh, can it be hard to strike. So the question for us here this morning is, do we want to obey God in the areas of work and rest? Perhaps you work too much because you think that if you don't, you will not be able to provide. The Jews said, we can't not work on the seventh day. We, we can't go a whole year without planting a crop. Like, we need to grind. <laughs> we need to provide. We got bills to pay, mouths to feed. But what it demonstrated to God in their hearts is that they didn't trust God to bring them provision. See, you don't need to work endlessly to survive. In fact, if you work endlessly, you won't survive. You won't flourish in life. But perhaps your issue is not that you work too much. Perhaps it's that you don't work enough. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 11, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. So may the Holy Spirit be speaking to us today. Whether he is using his word and he's saying, you need to rest. Or he's using his word and his spirit is saying, you need to work. And it comes down to a trust issue. Do we trust that if we slow down and rest, we know that God will still provide and the work will happen? And do we trust God that if we pick up work that he will give us strength and purpose to do it? So again, like marriage and sex, there are layers and nuances to this, and, and so we can't go into every case-by-case -case basis, so please do not get offended by what is being said, because if, if you're here and you're like, he doesn't understand my situation, uh, yeah, you're right, I don't. I've got my own situation to figure out how much I need to work and how much I need to rest, and it's between me and my God, and the Word of God and the Spirit of God is constantly instructing me in how to grow in these areas. See, God knows what you need, and you have a relationship with him where you can know what he has commanded, and you can know what he is calling you to do. So you can find that out, whether you need to work more or you need to rest more. God has a purpose in bringing balance to our lives in these areas. Amen? Amen. Lastly, they wanted to obey God in the area of money and giving. This is our last part. Verse 35 to the end says, We obligated ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also bring to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contribution and the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests and the sons of Aaron shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, 
and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. Again, so much in there that you could dive into. These, these could have been three different sermons, right? But this is the last part that we're going to talk about today, which is that God has created systems of value that we call money. And God has a lot to say in his word about money because for many, it becomes a God. Jesus said we cannot serve God and serve money at the same time. And it's not that money is evil, it is the love of money that chokes out the love of God and creates worries in our lives. Therefore, because we're made in the image of God and God has shown us how we can flourish with money, he, he, he showed us what we should do with it, which is that we should give it. We should be generous with it. And he created ways for us to use money to make sure that a good thing doesn't become a God thing. And the way that God helps us to keep money from being an idol is he says, give it away. See, God is a giving God, isn't he? He didn't spare his only son for us. Therefore, God calls us to give. Now, notice a few words in the text. The words first fruits and the words tithe. So first fruits in verses 35 through 37 speaks about giving off the top. They, they gave the first of what grew from the land, the first of what grew from trees, their firstborn sons they dedicated to God, the first of their cattle, everything that they owned they gave to God first. There's this story of a man who had two calves that were being born on the farm and he goes out and one is born healthy and the other one was born, stillborn, dead. And he goes to his wife and he says, honey, I've got some bad news today. I was on the farm and and God's calf died. <laughs> right? Because we like to give God the leftovers. Whereas God, in his word, says, give the first fruits. See, if we only give God what is left over, oh man, I've tried that. It doesn't work. <laughs> uh, we will not neglect the house of our God, they said. There's another word used in there, which is the tithe. A tithe is a word in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, that just simply means tenth, a tenth. So 10% of the income of the people went to the house of the Lord. And there's debate, right, of just in the same way that, you know, do we Sabbath on a Saturday? Do we give a tithe? To what extent are these uh, laws still under the new covenants? Now, look, I, um, I would say this. is I, I believe, my conviction is that the New Testament does not teach the tithe. It teaches generosity. In fact, in the early church, they would say, we're not bound to the law. We don't have to tithe we can give more. Because the New Testament teaches generosity and, and God wants a cheerful giver, a sacrificial giver, and a generous giver. And he does that by teaching you in discipleship to Jesus what that looks like. You know, in the Old Testament, there's only one place that God says to test him, and it's in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. When God says, test me on something, he's saying, do it. See. See what I'm going to do, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be no room enough to store it. You know, I've talked to people who are, just have that spiritual gift of generosity. I, I don't think that I have that gift. Uh, but they'll just say, I've never been able to outgive God. You know, God doesn't ask you to give because he wants your money. He asks you to give because he wants your heart. So give cheerfully, give sacrificially, if 10% seems to be a helpful benchmark to you, then praise God. If it's less, if it's more, that's between you and your God. You have a relationship with him, don't you? Between you and the word and the Holy Spirit, you can figure that out. So marriage and sex, 
work and rest, money and giving. We just ran into some stuff today. Like we just hit all the areas that historically the people of Israel struggled to obey God in. And and I'm right here to say I'm right there with them. And I'm sure you're sitting here. I, I don't believe that there is a single person in this room who can walk out of this place and say, I have perfectly obeyed God in marriage, sex, work, rest, money, and giving. Nailed it. I don't think there's anyone who can do that today. And look, this is the law that was presented to the people. You know what the purpose of the law was? It was to show us that we can't ever keep it. It was a tutor to bring us to Christ, to reveal our sin that we are utterly unable to obey God. We have all failed. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that is why we say, oh, how we need Jesus. Oh, how we need his mercy and his grace in our lives. Because for me, guys, in my marriage, it's good, but it's not perfect. In sexuality, it has been a work in progress in my life. In work, sometimes I think with work that it all depends upon me and I drive myself so hard to work, work, work. With rest, at times I have too much of it. At times I just, I have too little of it. With money, I'm thankful that I'm growing in detachment from it and into discipleship of Jesus with it. But man, the, the worry about money just loves to rear its ugly head up in my heart all the time. Generosity, I am nowhere near how generous my Savior is or even how generous my brothers and sisters in the church are, but I'm being discipled by Jesus in that. And so in all of these areas, I am a work in progress, and he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it. And you too, where are you at? Where could you say in one or all of these areas you can grow in the grace of God? Because church, when we're growing in grace, that's when a watching world says, I want what those people have. So let's walk in the grace of holiness. Let's walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this time. God, I thank you for such attentive hearers of your word today. And God, I pray for responsive hearts to your word. God, I pray, Lord, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. So God, help us to receive grace and mercy in the places where we have failed and help us to receive the grace and the empowering of your Holy Spirit to obey you in your commands. Thank you, God, that under the new covenant, what you command, you also enable. You give us the power to live out this holy calling that we are in. And thank you for your church today that is covered by the blood of Jesus, where our lawless deeds are remembered no more. Our sin is removed far from us as far as the east is from the west. And so, God, I pray for us right now that as we sing this song about your mercy and your grace, we would just call out to you and tell you, Jesus, how much we need you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand up together and worship for this last song.